coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and I am flying solo on today's show as I preview Georgia's New Year's Day matchup with the Cincinnati Bearcats in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. Curtis and Charlie, they've got some family holiday stuff going on today. They've kind of extended their holidays a little bit, but I've got you guys covered as we break down Georgia's final game of the 2020 season. I know that always sucks to be down to the final game of the season and look at that long, dark offseason. But this year, it's a little bit different. Obviously, I'm just so thankful and grateful that we were able to have some semblance of a football season. Obviously, it wasn't the season we all hoped with our success on the field. It wasn't the season we all hoped in terms of getting all the games in that we wanted to get in. It was a grind. There's no doubt about it. It was an absolute grind, but I still loved each and every second of it. I cannot imagine what this fall would have been like without college football. I mean, this pandemic has been bad enough in so many aspects of life, but without college football, I don't know, man. I don't know where I would be right now. So I'm just thankful that we were able to get a season in regardless of how it turned out. But the fact remains, this is it. This is the final go around for the 2020 season. And when we started this conversation last week in terms of of looking at the Peach Bowl, when Charlie and I recorded a quick Scouting the Enemy episode designed to help you guys kind of become a little bit more familiar with Cincinnati, and today we're going to take things a step further by discussing some of the important matchups and the keys to this game. And look, guys, I know that things get lost in the shuffle during the holidays, so for those of you who haven't listened to the Scouting the Enemy episode yet, I will incorporate some of the information from that episode into today's episode. But for those of you who have already checked out that Scout the Enemy episode on Cincinnati, I will also be going a lot more in detail and adding a lot more to this breakdown of today's show as well. So a little bit for everybody. If you listen to the Scout the Enemy episode, great. I'm going to have a lot more information for you guys today. And if you didn't check that out, I'll cover some of the stuff I mentioned on that episode and also cover all the new stuff as well. And since I'm doing this one solo... I have a chance to experiment a little bit with our final preview of the season. You longtime listeners know that one of the features that we include on every preview episode, really for the past couple years, is our 3-2-1 countdown where we identify three reasons for optimism, three, basically three reasons why Georgia should win the game, two causes for concern, so two reasons why Georgia might not win the game, and then one key to the game. For years now, that's kind of been how we would end our preview episodes, and it really initially started out as like a quick little wrap-up segment. But due to the feedback we've gotten, the positive feedback we've gotten on that segment and just its general popularity over the past couple of years, it's kind of grown into the main component of our preview episodes, especially as this season progressed. And look, we try to be a show of the people. We try to. And when you guys speak, we try to give you guys what we want. So with that positive feedback, I've been toying for a couple of weeks with the idea of expanding the three to one countdown. And I figured today, why not, would be a good day to try to give it a shot and see what the response is, see if you guys like it. So today, instead of starting at three, our countdown is going to start at five and work its way down to one. We're going to expand it just a little bit and add a couple of components to it. So we're going to start by giving you guys five players to know, five players from the opposing team, because we know you guys know what's going on with our roster. But what about Cincinnati's roster? Then I'll give you guys four numbers that tell the story. 
That's more of a, a stat-based component that'll give you a, a good feel for who we're facing, also how we might match up with that team. Then, of course, we'll go back to what we've been doing for a while, three reasons for optimism, two causes for concern, and then we'll wrap things up with one key to the game. So we're going to give it a shot today. We'll see how it goes. I don't know. I put a lot of time and thought into it, so hopefully it works out well. But uh, I'd love to hear you guys' feedback. If you enjoy let me know on social media. You can hit us up on Twitter, at Glory underscore UGA. You can just send us a tweet and DM us. Our DMs are open. Uh, you can also email us if email is more your style. You can email us at glorygujpodcast at gmail.com. We always love to get that feedback, guys. Because again, we try to be a show that people want to make sure we're producing content that you guys enjoy. So love to hear what you guys think. But we're going to give it a shot today. And we're going to start with five players to know. Now, again, if you listen to the Cincinnati Scout and the Enemy episode we did about a week, week and a half ago or so, pre-Christmas, then uh, this is the part where it might be a little bit more of a repeat. I'm going to talk about some of the players that we mentioned there to kind of familiarize you guys with their roster. But I'm also going to add a couple new players as well that we didn't really go into as much detail with on that Scout the Enemy episode, which is really more of a primer for Cincinnati. Today, we're going really, really deep into the Cincinnati team in this matchup with the Bearcats. But we're going to start at the quarterback position because, look, as we know, quarterback position is the most important position on the field. There's no doubt. And like a lot of teams in college football, a lot of successful teams in college football, Cincinnati's offense, in my opinion, is built around their quarterback, a guy by the name of Desmond Ritter. He is a true dual threat guy. And when I say true dual threat, a lot of times you you see that term thrown around with quarterbacks that can run the football, that just that have legs, but they can't really throw the ball. There's like like Terry Wilson, for example, is a guy that people want to call dual threat, but it's like, is he really a dual threat? Because I mean, I know he's a threat with his legs, but how much of a threat did Terry Wilson really pose with his arm? You know, like I, I guess that's just kind of what we've defaulted to calling a dual threat guy. But to me, a true dual threat is a guy that absolutely can threaten you with his legs. He has that athleticism component, but also could hurt you with his arm. And I think Desmond Ritter fits that bill. He's a true dual threat guy, not an elite passer by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly more than competent in that regard. He's tall, lanky, a long strider. And this is a guy that the Cincinnati fan base wasn't sold on coming into this year. Yes, they made the the American Conference Championship game last year against Memphis. They lost, I think they lost two games last year. They lost to Memphis twice. And they were competitive in those games, but Desmond Ritter hadn't really taken that step. He was, I don't want to say a full-on liability last year for them, but I remember watching them some last year in those Memphis games. I remember sitting down, sitting down and watching that American Conference Championship game last year. And Ritter was one of the reasons they lost that game. I would kind of equate it to like Stetson being against Alabama. Like Stetson did some good things against Alabama early in that game. But we all know in the second half, he well, I'm not going to say he lost us the game. It wasn't just him. We had a lot of guys getting torched in the secondary as well. But he was a ma- he was a primary contributing factor of why we lost that game, and I was I can kind of equate to that. Say Ritter in that game, in, in the games they lost last year, wasn't the only problem with the team, and wasn't the only reason that they lost that game, but was a primary contributing factor to that. So he had to kind of prove himself this year. He was the guy coming to the year. He was one of those guys that had a high level potential, but you never know if he was going to get there. And this year, he took that step. And now Cincinnati fans are all rallying behind him. He had a huge year this year. He'd always won a lot of games at Cincinnati, but it was really more so the talent around him and the coaching staff and how they structured that team. 
and he was talented, and he had those moments, but it was just so few and far between. He was really inconsistent, but this year, he's really picked up the consistency. I mean, for example, last year, the guy completed only 55% of his passes, 6.7 yards per attempt, 18 touchdowns, 9 picks, like, okay numbers, fine, had some moments. You could see the flashes of brilliance where you're like, man, this guy could be really good, but he wasn't consistently really good. This year, it's changed. He has been consistently really good. Not elite, but consistently really good. 66.4% completion percentage, over 11 point increase in his completion percentage this year. That's massive. That's a huge one year step. Almost two yards per attempt more. So not only is he completing a higher percentage of his passes, he's actually pushing the ball down the field a lot more, which is crazy to think about. Usually when you see uh, an inflated completion percentage number, it usually goes along with a lower yards per attempt number because those are the higher percentage throws. Usually the guys that have the the higher yards per attempt numbers, their completion percentages are usually a little bit lower because those are not near as high percentage throws when you're throwing the ball vertically down the field. But Ritter's one of those guys this year that's taken a big step forward in both categories. So really impressive to see what he's done this year. 17 touchdowns, six interceptions. But again, he's a dual threat guy. It's not just what he's doing with his arm. He also has 609 yards rushing on the year. And I think they only end up playing 10 games total, 7.3 yards per rush. So biting off chunks of yardage, 12 touchdowns on the ground. He Again, true dual threat guy. And they do run a, a ton of zone read with him. Uh, and like true zone read, which is more of like an old school. It's like the original spread option quarterback run play. So that's that's a big component of what they do offensively. But they'll also run some quarterback power, some quarterback draw, especially on third and long situations. Watch for that quarterback draw. And they incorporate a heavy load of RPOs into their offense. And different kind of RPOs, they run at, diff- at different levels. They'll run second level, third level RPOs. But that's a big part of what they do. They really like to get Ritter on the edges, roll the pocket, move the pocket with him. Because again, that push, with his dual threat ability, that puts more stress on the defense. And that dual threat ability, it really creates a lot of big play opportunities in the way that it does stress defenses. So if you want to, if you're wondering like, man, how did this guy increase his yards per attempt, essentially two yards in one year? It's I to me, it really comes back to what he can do with his legs because it limits what defenses can do from a coverage standpoint because they have to account for his legs. So a lot of the time, you're not going to consistently be able to play with two high safety looks against a guy like Ritter who runs the football as well as he does because they can complete they can create that plus one scenario in the box when your running backs now can turn into blockers. So you have to counter that with more bodies in the box. So a lot of times you're gonna you're gonna be a lot more predictable with a single high safety look. There's just fewer coverages that you can run from that look. So it makes you more predictable, which makes it easier for them to to create plays off of and design their offense around. And so that creates a lot of big play opportunities for him, especially when they get him on the edges. And look, guys, they've been pretty explosive. Uh, they're top 20 in both 20 plus and 30 plus yard plays this year. So this team has been able to create some explosive plays, but I still don't think that's the bread and butter of this offense. The bread and butter of this offense is the run game and the quick passing game. And and they do a good job after the catch of breaking tackles and making some plays after they catch the quick passes. So that's really what you're watching. When you're watching Desmond play, he's going to run the football. They're going to they're, they're gonna run the football. They're going to run some zone read off that, some quarterback powers, quarterback draw, all that kind of stuff. You can see a lot of RPOs, a lot of quick passing game. But when you... When they kind of lull you to sleep, they will try to hit some plays down the field, especially when they roll the pocket and try to move him a little bit. So watch out for that. But I will say this. If we can find a way, now this is certainly much easier said than done. It's one of those things. But if you can keep him in the pocket, he's not nearly as dangerous. He is certainly not a pocket passer. He's a competent passer, but he is not an elite pocket passer. That's where he starts to struggle a little bit. 
that's when you start to see the kind of spotty accuracy, poor reads, those kind of things. So that's going to be a key to this game. You know, there's always multiple keys to any game, but one of the keys will certainly be keeping Desmond Ritter in the pocket, really stopping their running game in general, force him to beat you from the pocket. Because if, if we can force them to do that, it's going to be tough slating them. I just don't know if they have the personnel to do that if we can keep him as kind of a pocket passer, more or less. Again, easier said than done. That's one of the things that we're going to try to focus on, no doubt about it. All right, moving on. The second player to know would be their leading tight end and really their leading passer catcher, Josh Wiley. He's one of those new age tight ends. He's their leading receiver in terms of receptions and receiving yards on the year. He's an athletic guy, can make some plays after the catch, big physical target. I really like this guy at tight end. I think this guy could potentially have an NFL future. I really believe that. And he's going to be their number one target. He has been all year. Uh, Going to our third player to know, sticking with the wide receivers, or at least the pass catchers, we're going to go with a guy that I think is their best receiver, a guy named Alec Pierce. Now, he's only their third leading receiver right now on the year, but he only played in five games this year, dealt with some injuries and some issues there, but he's back, he's healthy, had a big game in the American Conference Championship game against Tulsa. He averages 20 yards a catch. This guy is their explosive playmaker. He actually was their leading wide receiver last year. I think he's a really good player. He's 6'3", a big target, but also can move really well. Good route runner, strong hands, a really good receiver. I know Kirby said that their receivers, I think he said some of the lines of their receivers are the best receivers we've seen all year. Like That's a little bit of coach talk, guys. That's, that's more than a little hyperbole. They're good. Alec Pierce is good. Josh Wiley is good at tight end but they're not Alabama-level receivers. So let's not forget, we played Alabama when Jalen Waddle was still on that team. They're not what Florida had at the skill position. So no, they're not the best wide receivers that we face, but they are good, all right? They are good. They're just, I wouldn't say, the best group that we face. It's a little bit of coach speak there from Curry, but I get it, I get it. Uh, moving on, let's go to the defensive side of the ball here. Now, here's a guy that I mentioned pretty prominently on the Scout the Enemy episode. I'm gonna mention him again here, and that's pass rusher My Jai Sanders, 6'5", 258, this guy has an NFL future. He's an NFL, I mean, maybe a potential NFL star. Uh, I think he has that ability. Uh, he's explosive off the edge as a pass rusher. He's got a ton of pass rush moves. He's not just one of those guys that relies on the speed rush that you see. But, the, I mean, he's he, he's got an inside spin move. He's got a nice swim move. He'll bull rush you. He'll just flat out speed rush you. He's got a lot of things. He uses his hands really well off the edge. Really like this guy. I don't like him this game, but he's a really impressive player. Uh, and they do, on top of him just being a really great athlete and a really good player in his own right, the coaching staff does a great job of scheming this guy free. They move him around all over the place. They make it really tough to game plan for. They have this. They have a, a, a unique defense. I mean, we, we saw a little bit against Mississippi State, but kind of like a 3-3-5 defense, and they, it's tough to know where guys are coming from. So they do a good job of moving them around, and it's tough to game plan for, that, for a guy like that if you don't know where he's going to be from snap to snap. That's why it's different. Then like a 4-3 defensive end, like a 4-3 defensive end, you know where that guy's going to be. It's easier to game plan for. But a guy like Sanders, who can also drop in a coverage, they can, do, they can do different things with him. It's tougher to game plan for. And then we've got two offensive linemen out, two starting offensive linemen out, Bing Cleveland and Trey Hill. That's a concern. And they also, uh, with him and also with other guys up front, they're not huge up front. They do a really good job of being disruptive because they stunt a ton. They twist, all that kind of stuff. They're going to stunt a, fr- a ton up front. And Sanders um, is a good guy. They're going to try to get free. So we've got to watch out and be aware. You're never going to know where he's going to line up and where he's going to be coming from. We have to find him and be aware of him every single snap. And the last player, we go with one more defensive player here, is a cornerback, Ahmad Gardner. He's one of those guys, he's a little thin, but he's got the length that you want at cornerback. 6'2", 190. Uh, in two years at Cincinnati, he's only a sophomore. In his two years at Cincinnati, this guy's got over 750 snaps 
essentially a, a, a two-year starter, essentially a day one starter. He has not allowed a touchdown yet in two years. Yes, I know it's a group of five conference. I get it, but that's still pretty impressive no matter what conference you play in. He's got two pick sixes, six interceptions overall. This guy is the real deal. He's a really good cornerback. It's going to be really fun to watch him match up against George Pickens, I'm sure most of the game. So that's what, that's going to be a matchup to watch. This guy is really good. He's got the length that can give Pickens some issues. But Pickens is, is really good in his own right as well. So that's that, that might be one of the key matchups in this game as well. Who wins that? Because we're going to need some help on the outside because they do a good job of stopping the run. They've been really strong in that regard all year long. So we're going to have to find a way to get Pickens free. And Pickens has struggled at times getting off press coverage. Now, Gardner's not as physical. He's tall and long, so he can get his hands on you. But he's not as thick and physical as some of the cornerbacks that, that George has had some trouble in the past getting off those presses. So hopefully he'll be able to do that. But Ma Garner is a good player and certainly someone that we've got to be aware of at all times. All right, so those are five players to know on the Cincinnati Bearcats roster. Obviously, there's a lot more good players. This is a really good Cincinnati team. But those are the top five guys on my list. So let's move on to the next part. And let's go over four numbers that tell the story. And look, this is another one of those numbers that I kind of laid out on the Scout and the Enemy episode. But for those who haven't heard it, I think this is kind of, it might be kind of eye-opening for some of you guys in terms of how good this Cincinnati Bearcats team is. And for those of you who did listen to that episode, it never hurts to hear this again. But guys, this is a really good group of five team. Yes, I know they are in the group of five. It's not the ACC. I get all that. I get their roster can't match up. We'll talk about that in a minute. But... The fact is, guys, this is a really good team, and they deserve our respect. They have not only been dominant against the also-rans, they've they've been dominant against the best competition they have faced. And look, yeah, I know it's the American Athletic Conference. It's clearly the best group of five conference out there. And I've also gone on record saying, like, I think the top half of the American Athletic Conference is as good as the Big 12. I really believe that. I know the Big 12 has Oklahoma and has a team like Texas, who hasn't been great, but is really talented. But top to bottom, I don't think there's all that much difference between the American Conference and the Big 12, the American Conference and the Pac-12. I really don't believe there is. Now, is it the SEC? Of course not. But the top three, four, five teams in that conference on an annual basis, I think they can absolutely compete in the Big 12, Pac-12, those kind of conferences, which are obviously Power 5 conferences. But if you look at Cincinnati, I know it's it's popular to just kind of dismiss these group of five programs, say, oh yeah, they're really good, but they couldn't hold up in the SEC. They couldn't hold up in the ACC. Maybe they couldn't hold up in those conferences. But if you look at Cincinnati, they have been really good. I mean, dominating the best teams on their schedule. It might not be SEC level competition, but the fact is against the best teams on their schedule, they have been dominant. They held Central Florida, who was number two nationally in total offense, through the regular season, they held them to 359 yards of offense when UCF averaged on the year 585 yards per game. They held them over 200 yards under their season average of offense in that game. Now, you could say, well, that's just an anomaly. I mean, that's just one game, right? Well, no. I mean, UCF was the best offense they faced, but wasn't the only good offense they faced. SMU had the 12th ranked offense nationally this year, and they held SMU to 290 yards of offense when the Mustangs averaged 494 yards on the year. Again, over 200 yards less than what they averaged per game when they played Cincinnati. And and Houston, not quite as good as UCF and SMU offenses, but still a top 50 team nationally. Held Houston to 282 yards in that matchup when Houston averages 423 yards a game. So look, again, yeah, I know UCF, SMU, Houston. Those aren't SEC teams. I get that. But 
they were dominant against the best teams on their schedule. So I think that number right there, I guess a combination of numbers there against UCF, SMU, and Houston, I think that really should give you an idea of how much we should at least respect this Cincinnati team. They are capable of beating us. They, I'm not saying they should be the favorite. I don't think they should. They don't have the roster that we have. They don't have the coaching staff that we have. Although I do have a lot of respect for Luke Fickle and what they're doing over there with that coaching staff. But this team deserves our respect. And if we do not come to play, if we play lackadaisically, if we turn the ball over, they are absolutely capable of beating us. There's no doubt in my mind. All right, next number here. Uh, one of the reasons they've been so good and they've been so dominant against those top offenses they face, whether it's UCF, SMU, or even Houston, they're third nationally with 15 interceptions on the year. At least they were third nationally coming into bowl season. I think they're like fourth or fifth now because a couple teams have already played their bowls that were that are now ahead of them. But they were third nationally at the end of the regular season with 15 interceptions on the year. So a very opportunistic defense. They're just flat out good on defense. They don't give you much of anything, but they're also a very opportunistic. They force a lot of turnovers. I mentioned Ahmad Gardner earlier. He's their number one guy in the secondary, six interceptions through two years. They do a really good job of forcing teams to turn the ball over, and they capitalize on that when they do force those turnovers. And JT Daniels is a guy that's been really good for us, obviously, and we'll get to him here in a minute. He's been great for us. He's changed our entire offense, changed the complexion of this entire team. But I still, I mean, go back to his his freshman year at US, USC. I know it was a couple years ago now, but you've seen some examples of it even this year. Now, granted, he hasn't played you know much football in the past year and a half, but he still kind of has a little bit of that gunslinger mentality. He has a high football IQ, but he will try to, he'll take some chances and try to fit some balls into some tight windows. And he's not above making a poor decision here and there. We saw him get away with a couple of those. We saw him get away with a poor decision against South Carolina. Now he was almost, almost flawless against Mississippi State. He had that one throw early, maybe on the first drive against Mississippi State that should have been picked, but he was lights out, like almost perfect from that point on. But still, like, I know there haven't been many, but there have been some situations where like, he put some balls in spots where those balls probably should have been intercepted. He still has a little bit of that gunslinger mentality in him. So that's something that, that scares me a little bit with this team that is very opportunistic and they really capitalize on those turnovers and create turnovers. They'll bait you at times what they do in the secondary. So that's something to just be very cognizant of and, and aware of in this game. And hopefully, and I'm sure they have, our coaches kind of hammer that into JT's head throughout this bowl prep period. So that's the second number to tell a story. And the next one, so I mentioned Desmond Ritter earlier, right? So he's he's the quarterback, dual threat guy, really taking a big stride this year. But even last year when he wasn't dynamic and the, the fan base was kind of getting on his back a little bit, the guy has still been a winner since he's taken over that starting quarterback job. Now, it hasn't always been just him. It's a really good program, great coaching staff, play really good defense. But Desmond Ritter has been a winner since he's taken over that starting job. He actually has the second highest winning percentage among active FBS quarterbacks. He's won 88.2% of his games over the past two seasons. The only quarterback in the FBS with a higher winning percentage is Trevor Lawrence, who clearly is going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft here in a matter of months. That's how good Desmond Ritter has been. Now, again, hasn't always been great. A lot of it had to do with what was around him last year, but this year the guy has taken his game to another level, and he's a huge reason why they are undefeated. The offense begins and ends with Desmond Ritter. They have other good players. Alec Pierce is a good player. Wiley is a good player at tight end. They have uh, Dokes is a good running back, but really it all runs through Desmond Ritter. Like sure they'll they'll run Dokes like and, and they'll run their tailbacks, but. Those it's almost like those guys, like when they carry the ball, it's designed to set up Ritter. Like they want to kind of lull you to sleep 
with those inside zones, outside zones, those kind of things. And then when they lull you to sleep, then Ritter is the one who will eventually pull it and he'll gash you. That's why it's like over seven yards per, per per carry this year. I really believe that he's the one they want to be like their big play threat in the run game. The other guys, sure, they'll break some here and there, but more, they're more kind of like move the chains, get you three, four yards, run the inside zone, outside zone. And then when they get your eyes focused on that, then Ritter will pull it when you get a little undisciplined, and that's when they'll gash you, hit those big plays. So Ritter's been a winner, guys. This program's been really good. And in terms of winning football games for the past two years, again, I know they're a group of five, but they've been about as good as anyone in the country in terms of just winning football games. Again, Desmond Ritter's been a big part of that. Now, the fourth number that I have here, again, it's, this is kind of like a combination of numbers here, but we'll call it a number. Uh, this one is not Cincinnati. This is about the Georgia Bulldogs because, hey, we're playing this game too. It's not just about Cincinnati. I know I'm trying to get you guys familiar with Cincinnati and, and who the Bearcats are and what they bring to the table. But if we're trying to tell the story of this Peach Bowl matchup, you got to about the Georgia Bulldogs a little bit too. Hey guys, you know it. I know it. I just alluded to it a few minutes ago. Our offense is an entirely different animal than what it was the first six games. Over the last three games, we have become a very dangerous offense. And I got the numbers to back this up. And some of you guys are probably aware of all these, but it's just kind of stark when you hear it. So the first six games, with Stetson Bennett essentially as our quarterback, right? I know he didn't start the first game, but he played at least a full half of that game and uh, was essentially the guy. So through the first six games with Stetson Bennett as our starter, we averaged 382 yards per game, 29 points per game, in 5.4 yards per play, which was 85th nationally, by the way, in yards per play. It's not very good. Over the last three games, however, once we inserted JT Daniels in the starting lineup, once he was fully healthy, which again, if you listen to Todd Munkin in his press conference today, he made it pretty clear that JT was not healthy to start the season. That's why he wasn't the guy from the get-go. I think we all knew that, but it's good to kind of, I mean, Kirby's kind of danced around the issue. I think he's been more direct with it lately, but Munkin was pretty clear about it. I was like, no, he just wasn't ready. And then once he got ready, uh, from a health standpoint, he had to go down the scout team and, and just prepare and get familiar with our offense. And once he was ready there, then he's our guy. So last three games, he's been our guy. And uh, he has taken our offense to an entirely new stratosphere. So again, first six games, averaged 382 yards per game. Last three with JT Daniels, 498 yards per game, just a hair under 500 yards a game. First six games, averaged 29 points per game. The last three with JT, all the way up to 41.6 points per game. Again, a dramatic increase. And this next one's probably the craziest one. So 5.4 yards per play through the first six games, 85th nationally. Last three games with JT, all the way up to 7.56 yards per play. If we extrapolate that out to the entire season, which I know you can't necessarily do, right? But if we did, like last three games, we've averaged 7.56 yards per play. If we extrapolate that out through the entire season, that would put us at fourth nationally in yards per play. That is elite offensive production, no matter how you slice it, all right? That is a huge part of this game. Our offense is a different animal. I know, I'm sure that there's a Cincinnati Bearcat podcast out there, and they're talking about how, you know, Georgia, you know, they're really not that good on offense. You look at their numbers, they're kind of middle of the pack. Well, that doesn't really tell you the whole story. To get the full story, you need to look at the last three games and look at the offense that we will be bringing to Atlanta in the Peach Bowl against Cincinnati. What happened the first six games, and as far as I'm concerned, is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. We are an entirely different offense. George Pickens is back healthy. Jermaine Burton has grown up. We have JT Daniels at quarterback. We're healthy at running back. Our offensive line has gelled. It's an entirely different Animal. So I know when you look on paper, you say, well, like, I think this might be a really good matchup for Cincinnati. Like, their defense is great. Their offense has been ho-hum all year. It's been fine, but not great. 
Yeah, that's true. The first six games, last three games, we have been in a, a borderline, if not flat out, just elite offense. I mean, 7.56 yards per play. Again, fourth nationally, if extrapolated out. And 498 yards per game, that's really kind of misleading because the last two games, we essentially weren't trying to score for the last quarter and a half of those games. So we were just blowing South Carolina and Missouri out. If we were playing full games there and had our stars in for the entire game, we'd probably be averaging close to 600 yards per game right now over the last three. And the 7.56 yards per play tells you that. That's what tells you a true story. That's all. That's about the offensive efficiency. And we have been literally as efficient as any team in the country offensively over the last three games. That is the offense that we are bringing to this game. So yeah, I know Cincinnati is really good on defense. I am telling you guys, you need to respect them. They are really good. My Jai Sanders is an awesome pass rusher. Ahmad Gardner is a really good long DB that can give us problems out wide. He can certainly make it a tough day for George Pickens. But let's not act like this is the same Georgia offense that played Florida, that played Alabama, and those big-time national games everybody watched and pointed and laughed at us. Not the same offense. I know nationally people haven't really been watching us much, much lately because while we played Mississippi State, South Carolina, and Missouri, we weren't on the national radar really after that loss in Jacksonville. But you guys have seen it. I've seen it. We know what kind of offense we're bringing in there. And I think it might be a little bit of a surprise for some of the Cincinnati Bearcat fans who think that what they saw against Alabama or Florida is what they're going to see in the Peach Bowl. And that just ain't happening. Not happening. All right, let's move on here. Let's go to our three reasons for optimism. Continue the countdown. So three reasons for optimism. Again, this is kind of just, if you're new to the show, three reasons why I think that we should win this game. And the first one, guys, I know this is kind of the low-hanging fruit, but I mean, it's just true. I just got to go with it. The number one reason that we should be optimistic about our chances in this game is we are just the far, far, far more talented team in this game. It's not even close. Like this shouldn't even have to be mentioned, but if we're talking about why we should be optimistic, why we think why I think we should win this game, this has got to be first and foremost, it's gotta be the top of the list, right? So if you look at the 247 does this really cool thing every year. Not only do they do the team rankings each year for the for each recruiting cycle, but each year before the season starts, they actually do a team talent composite rating. What they do is they look at your 85 scholarship players or however many scholarship players you have on your roster and they take their composite rating in the 247 composite and they come up with a ranking of the most talented overall rosters in America. And guys, I think I mentioned this early in the season, I believe, but in case you missed that episode, we are first nationally this year according to the 247 talent composite ratings. According to 247, we're the most talented team. We have the most talented roster in all of America. That doesn't always mean you're going to win every game. That's college football. It's how it works. Quarterback position is the most important position. We can have talent everywhere on the field, but if you don't have the quarterback position solved, then you ain't going to win the big games. And we saw that firsthand a couple times this year. But in terms of a full roster, 1 through 85 scholarship players, we have the most talented roster in America. If you look at Cincinnati, like they're a talented group of five team, but if you put it in the national perspective, they're only 59th nationally in the team talent composite rankings on 247. Again, just not even close. Like it shouldn't even be mentioned in the same conversation. Now, like I said, this is college football. That that alone does not mean that we will win. I've, I've told you guys several times on the show, the way I look at it, and this just is how my mind works, really in, in terms of like your football program in, in, in like winning games, it comes down to three things. Talent acquisition, which is recruiting, talent development, coaching those guys up, and then talent deployment, actually on game day, scheming things up, calling plays, all that kind of stuff. It's those three things. I've always said I think talent is the most important of those components. They're all important, but if 
you have to have one. If I had to pick one, I want to have the most talented team, all right? That's going to give you an edge going into each and every game. Doesn't mean you win every game. We see it week in and week out, but you're going to have that edge. So we certainly have the town edge, and that's an extraordinarily good place to start. You want to start there first and foremost. Now, my second reason for optimism is that Cincinnati, yes, they are good up front on their offensive line. They're not bad. They run the ball well. That, that, that's their bread and butter. They want to run the football. But still, like, when I watch them play, like I know their rushing numbers are good, but when I watch their offensive line play, I just don't think they're especially good up front. They're not bad. They're just not great. They're okay. They're fine. They're, they're great for a group of five team playing against other group of five teams. But in terms of trying to project that out to a, a power five defensive front, like we have a, an elite defensive front with Jordan Davis back healthy, I just don't think they're anything special. I don't think they're especially good up front. And here's the thing, guys, let's not forget, I know we've had some issues against the pass this year, but we are still number one in America against the run, only giving them 69 yards per game. And again, that is what Cincinnati does. They run the ball 58% of the time. They're inside the top 15 nationally in rushing offense, and they're barely inside the top 50 nationally in passing offense. This is a team and offense that's built around the run game, and that's a great matchup for us. It just is. We are still, again, number one against the run, only allowing 69 yards per game. So if we can take away their run game, and, and yes, I will admit, they will stress us in the run game in a way we haven't been stressed this year with Desmond Ritter's ability as a dual threat quarterback, like his ability as a true dual threat quarterback that can run and pass, like that's going to be a different animal for us. I know we play like Kentucky with with Joey Gatewood, who's a very mobile quarterback. That's what he does. But he's not a true dual threat guy right now. He can't beat you with his arm. So we've seen some parallels with with some of those teams that we play like Kentucky, but not a guy that's a true dual threat in the way that Desmond Ritter is. So he will stress us in a way that we have not been stressed before. But again, it's just a great matchup. Running the ball is what they do well. Stopping runs is what we do well. I, I I really, really like that matchup. They run the ball well. We stop the run better than they than they run the ball. That's that's just the fact. Um, and again, Desmond Ritter, if we can if we can at least hold their run game in check, Desmond Ritter, as good as he is, and as good as he's been this year, he will not beat us from the pocket on a consistent basis. I'm not saying he can't stand the pocket and deliver a throw here and there, but can he do that consistently if that's what he has to do if we force him to do that play in and play out? I haven't seen him be able to do that. I haven't. He hasn't really had that. No team in the group of five has really forced him to have to do that. But again, our defense is certainly the best defense they have faced all year. He just isn't like he just isn't the type of quarterback that that does that. I'm not saying he's not good. He is good. I try to tell you guys that, but he's not a, a guy that's gonna sit back in the pocket and just destroy you from the pocket. That's that's not what he does. And on top of that, they don't really have that type of skill talent on the outside. Wiley's good at tight end. Yeah, he's good. Pierce is good. Yeah, but look, they don't have. Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith and Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Tony. They don't have those kind of guys. No matter what Kirby Smart says, I know Kirby's talking about saying it's the best group of pass catchers that we face all year. And look, I I respect it, Kirby. I get it, man. He, he learns a lot more about football than I ever will. But I just just watching them play and watching Florida and Alabama, it's no, no. They're good. They're just they're not that. So stopping the run is gonna be a key for us in this game. And I think we have the defense to do that. Now they're going to give us some heavy RPOs, kind of slow down our linebackers and support defenders that are coming in to support against the run. They're going to give us some RPOs to make that tough for us, but that's nothing new to us. We've seen that a lot this year. Now they might be more efficient and effective with some of the other teams that we've played, the team like Kentucky, but that's certainly what they're going to try to do. And I, and I, and I think that we'll be, but I think we'll be prepared for that. I, I, I fully 
believe that. And then finally, the third reason for optimism here is that let's go to their defensive side of the ball here. So the Cincinnati defense is really good. But their safeties and slot defenders get heavily involved in the run game. And it's by virtue of how their defense is schemed up. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail of this uh, in the next segment here, but just a quick little preview of it. I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier. They run a version of like a 3-3-5 defense, okay? So they only have like three down linemen on the field, and therefore you're going to have to get your safeties and, and slot defenders, your star guys. You're going to have to get them heavily involved in the run game. You're going to have to to get numbers. And that's fine. That's fine. Teams have a lot of success with that. There's a lot of teams in the Big 12 that do that when you play a lot of passing offenses, which is what they face a lot of in the American Athletic Conference with teams like Houston and SMU and, and UCF, these spread-to-pass offenses. But th- these safeties and their slot defenders are really aggressive down, like triggering downhill against the run. And that's fine. That can be great if a team wants to run the ball like, like what we are apt to do. But they also get their eyes caught in the backfield a little too much. We've, we've been guilty of this at times this year, especially against Florida. But they will get their eyes caught in the backfield because they are just so trigger happy coming downhill and trying to attack against the run. And that makes them very vulnerable to play action shots. And JT Daniels has been very good off of play action since he's taken over the starting quarterback job. And again, I think this is a team that is very vulnerable to that. They've given up 20 pass plays of 20 or more yards on the year. And Daniels has shown the propensity to hit those shots down the field. I'm not saying he's hit every single deep shot he's thrown out there, but he has hit his fair number of them. He's hit a ton of them, far more than Stetson or Dwan Mathis were hitting when those guys were man the quarterback position. So I think that's something to watch very close in this game. I imagine we're going to try to get our run game established and then um, hopefully work play action off that because I'm telling you, those safeties, those slot defenders, they will trigger aggressively. They'll get their eyes caught in the backfield and we're going to have an opportunity, multiple opportunities I would imagine, to hit some big plays on the field. We've got to capitalize on those. And I think that we will. Because again, Daniels has proven very capable of doing that. Our receivers have really come on of late with him at quarterback. I think that we're going to hit some of those opportunities. And that might be one of the differences in this game. But let's move on to our two reasons for concern. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. There are some reasons to be concerned about our chances in this game. And the first one, and look, I know if the Cincinnati fans are listening to this, I don't know if there's some Cincinnati fan that's searching for a preview of this game from the Georgia side to see how we're viewing it. Maybe there's someone out there. I don't know. Uh, But I know they're going to be like, their eyes are going to bug out of their head when they hear me say this because this drives those group of five fans crazy. When they face the when they face Power Five teams in these New Year Six games like this, but opt outs and motivation has to be a major concern for us here. Now I've been pleasantly surprised with some of the guys who could have opted out that I was worried might opt out, and there were actually some reports that they would opt out. I've been pleasantly surprised, and, and it's been, it's been great to see some of these guys come back. Guys like Aziz Ojulari decided to, to, to play this game. Tyson Campbell decided to play this game. Jordan Davis decided to play this game, and you know don't look now, guys, but Richard Account. All reports indicate, and there's photo evidence, that he is at least practicing. Now, does that mean he's fully cleared to play? Is he going to play? Kirby is kind of playing coy with that. I don't know. Um, Richard's, Richard's kind of put some cryptic posts out there on social media, but I think there's a really good chance, from what I'm hearing, that Richard LeCount is going to play in this game. And that's awesome. Like I, I didn't think he was going to play. Now, of course, you, you, there's going to be some guys like Monty Rice, Ben Cleveland, and Eric Stokes who have opted out with Rice in Cleveland. It's more injury related. Like they just they've got some stuff they got to clean up. They've been banged up late in the year. So I get it. I'm, it is what it is. It's kind of what happens to bowl games when they're no one's playing for a championship. But there's not as many guys that are going to opt out as I 
initially thought. But there's still some key players. We're going to be about two starting offensive linemen. Trey Hills is more of an injury situation. He's not opting out. Cleveland's opting out. Monty Rice is opting out. Eric Stokes is opting out. So we're going to be without some some key starters on defense. Now, we look fine on, on offense with the exception of Ben Cleveland. I, now, that's, that's the big exception. He's been really, really good for us at guard this year. He's been one of the better guards in the SEC, if not one of the better guards in all of America the vast majority of the year. But it looks like we're going to be without a couple of starters on defense. And that, that's got to be a concern. And not just the opt-outs. Because like we do have a town advantage, but if, if all those talented players, those stars aren't playing, then how much of a town advantage do you really have? How much does that cut into? Now we still obviously have a town advantage, but it doesn't help to not have guys like Monty Rice and Ben Cleveland and Eric Stokes, who are certainly going to be playing in the NFL in uh, what I guess eight or nine months here in a little while. But beyond that, just the motivation. This is what, this is what does concern me about games like this. Not just the opt outs, but like how motivated is your team to play a group of five? Is it, is it a letdown for you guys? You play in the in the SEC, the top conference in America, and then now you're playing a group of five team. You don't get to play Oklahoma in the Cotton Bowl. Like I was hoping that we would get a chance to. You don't even get to play North Carolina in the Orange Bowl, which would have been a lot of fun too. And we've seen like we've seen both sides of this. Like we saw in 2018, the Sugar Bowl, we were disappointed. We got left out of the playoffs. We thought we should have been in. We got left out in favor of Oklahoma. We were the number five team. We go in the Super Bowl against Texas, and we had some opt-outs, and we just were disinterested. Like we just we weren't interested in being that game. You guys saw it. We all saw that. We know that. But then fast forward to last year, to 2019, in the Super Bowl against Baylor, it was a very different story. We had some opt-outs, yeah, but our team was much more focused. They were much more motivated. They were much more into the game than what we were in 2018. So I think you have to think Kirby Smart learned something from how he handled it in 2018. Allowing guys like that had opted out, like DeAndre Baker, who had opted out, but allowed him to kind of stay on the program, make the bowl trip. Like, I think he learned from that and learned how to handle that situation a little bit better. Because look, like this opt-out thing is still a relatively new phenomenon. Coaches are still learning how to do how to handle, especially a guy that hadn't hadn't been a head coach before, hadn't really been in that situation. But I think he really figured that out after uh, the 2018 fiasco in the Sugar Bowl, and we saw that the difference last year in 2019. So I'm hopeful we'll see that difference again this year, and hopefully our guys are motivated to kind of silence the critics a little bit here that'd be awesome but it still has to be concerned because we all saw like 2018 happened that happened I, I want to believe that we have learned from that and we've moved past that but it still happened and I guess maybe I'm just a little psychologically scarred from that and, and also like it wasn't that long ago guys what was it 2000 yeah 2017 the year we went to the national championship game Auburn lost in the very same Peach Bowl to UCF all right now UCF was that that undefeated team in the Power Five that year, this year at Cincinnati. So we've seen other it happen to other SEC teams. Let's not forget that Auburn team was ranked number two coming to the SEC Championship game that year, guys. That was a really good Auburn team. And I know Carrion Johnson was injured a little bit. Yeah, I get all that. But they lost. So there's a precedent of Power Five teams coming in not really super motivated and losing games like this. We've done it before in the Sugar Bowl, not with a group of five team, but we've done it before. So that's my number one concern, all right? And I'm not saying if we lose, that's why. I'm not going to say, yeah, for sure, if we lose, that's the only reason why. Maybe they'll just beat us. I don't know. But I am concerned about some of the opt-outs and the talented players, starters, key players of this team, key leaders on this team, especially on defense, and just the motivation standpoint. I hope we've moved past it, but we'll see. Remains to be seen. And then my second reason for concern in this game, and I kind of alluded to this uh, in the in the last component here when I was talking about the reasons for optimism, is that they run a funky style defense. It's not un, it's not altogether uncommon. There are different conferences in the country where they have a lot of teams that run this. Like the Big 12, you have a number of teams that will kind of base out of a 3-3-5. Iowa State does this. They've done this for a while. And Mississippi State did this 
against us when we faced them, what, a month, a month and a half ago now, right? They were in a three-man front. It is similar in a lot of ways to the 3-3-5 we saw against Mississippi State. And let's not forget, guys, Mississippi State held us to eight yards rushing in that game. Yeah, JT Daniels threw for 400, but we did every single one of those 400 yards passing to beat that team because they came out just dead set on stopping the run, and they were very successful with that. And on top of that, not only have we had issues against 3-3-5 defenses this year, at least against Mississippi State, and guys, I'll be real with you. Mississippi State's defense is good. I think Cincinnati's defense is better than Mississippi State's defense this year. I do, I do. And that Mississippi State defense, maybe if they were at, at full health, they would be better than Cincinnati, but they weren't at full health. They had a lot of opt-outs, had some COVID issues, and they still held us to eight yards rushing. And in this game, we don't have Ben Cleveland. We don't have Trey Hill. We don't have those guys, those two starting offensive linemen at center and guard respectively. And we had those guys against Mississippi State, and they still held us to eight yards rushing. We don't have them in this game. And the reason it's tough is because it's just... It's kind of like when you face a triple option offense defensively. It's like you don't play against that style very often. Like when you practice, you don't practice against a 3-3-5 really ever until you get like to the game week where you're playing that team. And so you only get so many reps going against that. I guess you can do a little bit in spring practice if you know you're going to face a team like that. But it's just not what you go against on a day-by-day basis when you're out there at practice. And, and, and on top of that, what makes it also difficult is that you don't know where guys are coming from. A 3-3-5 defense, the, the, what makes that unique and special is that it gives you depth to your defense. And what I mean by that is you, do, you don't have as many guys standing on the line of scrimmage. It's not like the old school bear defense where you have like five guys on the line of scrimmage. Because you know, like those five guys have their hands down the line of scrimmage. You know where they're coming from on every single snap. If you have a three-three-five, you know you're bringing four or five guys every single snap. But you don't know where those guys are coming from. Are they going to be your inside linebackers? Are they going to be safeties? Are they going to be corners? Are they going to be your slot defenders? Where are those guys coming from? And it makes it really difficult on an offensive line that again hasn't faced this kind of system very often. It's still new to them, and. It's tough to game plan for and call plays for, which again, you don't know where these guys are going to be coming from. So that is something that is concerning to me. We saw that against Mississippi State. It's not like they're Cincinnati's 335 is not a carbon copy of what we saw against Mississippi State, but there are a lot of parallels or a lot of similarities. And that does give me some concern. And another similarity here is like Mississippi State, they weren't huge up front. We had a major size advantage up front against their, their three-man front. But they created so much havoc in the backfield because they were just penetrating. They were quicker than us. They were just shooting gaps. And that's a lot like Cincinnati. Cincinnati does that too. Like they're, they're smaller up front on the defensive line. They have no starting defensive linemen over 300 pounds, but they do a good job of penetrating, shooting gaps, creating havoc in the backfield. And again, we saw that against Mississippi State. Hopefully we've learned from that. We've had a chance to clean that up. We've had a, a little bit more time to prep for this bowl game. So hopefully that gives us more reps and more confidence going against that kind of defensive scheme. But the fact remains, we saw something similar against Mississippi State, and that gave us a lot of troubles in the run game. And I do not want to see a repeat of that. We need to be much more efficient in the run game against this team because you can't, I mean, I, I hope J.D. Daniels could throw for 400 yards again if, if needed, but you can't count on that. We got to find a way to run the football because our, our offense still centers a lot around being able to run the football and being balanced when we have to be. So that's something to certainly watch in this game as well. And that finally brings us to our one key to the game. And guys, honestly, this one's pretty simple to me. I alluded to a little bit earlier. Very simply, the key to this game. There's multiple keys to every game. Yeah, I know. But if I had to pick one, I'm very simply going to say, can we stop the run? 
That, again, is the foundation of who Cincinnati is on offense. They've run the ball 58% of the time on the year. They're top 15 nationally in rush offense, only barely inside the top 50 in pass offense. They can throw the ball when they need to. They do a good job with a quick pass game. RPOs got some good solid receivers out there with Wiley and Pierce, but that's not who they are. That's more of a compliment to their ground game. The foundation of who they are on offense is is that ground game. So if we can stop the run and force Desmond Ritter to beat us from the pocket, I don't think Cincinnati wins this game. In fact, I don't see how they can win this game if we can stop the run. And that just so happens to be what we have been best at defensively. In fact, we've been best in the country at defensively this year. Now, I will say, like I said earlier, they will stress us. Like we are great against the run. And it's awesome that Jordan Davis is back. That's a huge, huge player to have back in this game. He's a massive human being. and It's massive to have him ready and able to play in this game. But they will stress us in a way that we have not been stressed all year with Desmond's Ritter's with his ability as a true dual threat guy. A guy that can hurt you with his legs, but also is a competent enough passer to truly threaten you in that regard as well. Again, I think he's probably the first true dual threat we face. Now you can say you can look at at Kentucky and say, yeah, well, Joey Gatewood can run the football. Yeah, that's about all Joey Gatewood could do. He can't really throw the football. And outside of that, like what other team do we face here that truly had a mobile quarterback? I guess you could maybe say Auburn with Bo Nix, but they don't really run him the way that Cincinnati will run Desmond Ritter. That he's he's not, his his ability to run the football is not like a centerpiece of that offense the way it is for Cincinnati with Desmond Ritter. So I think he's the first true like flat out dual threat guy we face this year. So he will stress us in a way that we have not been stressed with to defend them in a way that we haven't really defended teams all year. But the fact is we've been dominant against the run this year. That's what they do best. Stopping the run is what we do best. I just think we're better stopping the run than they are running the football. So I will give you guys my prediction later on this week when Charlie and I wrap up our bowl picks. We've got part two of our bowl picks coming up later on this week. I think we'll have that up for you guys probably Wednesday night. Before I get out of here though, I do, I have to change a pick. I already ran this by Charlie. She she she's allowing it. We'll we'll talk about this on on Bowl Picks Part Two. Well, if you guys call the first edition of our Bowl Picks Part One, we talked about the Cotton Bowl, and I did pick Florida to beat Oklahoma. I thought they would outscore Oklahoma. However, since I have recorded that episode, since I made that pick, basically every single one of Florida's starting skill players on offense have opted out of this game. I knew Kyle Pitts was not going to play. But it was still up in the air as to whether Kadarius, Tony, and Grimes, and Cope, and all those guys are going to play. Well, they're all out. Every single one of their starters is out. Now, Kadarius, Tony's opted out. Grimes opted out. Pitts already opted out. And Jacob Copeland, their other starting wide receiver, he's out with a COVID issue. So they're all out, which means i got to change my pick. I picked Florida in that game by virtue of the fact I thought they would outscore Oklahoma. Oklahoma Stevens is much better this year. But they have been really suspect against the pass. They've been great against the run. They're only like 77th nationally against the pass. The Florida's got one of the top passing offenses in the country when everybody's playing. Everybody's healthy, but everybody's not playing. Everybody's not healthy in that game. And Kyle Trask has been so good this year. Got to give the guy credit. I was hard on him at the beginning of the year. I stand by that, though. He, I think he's more a function of the offense he's playing in that's built around his skill set and also has elite skill talent around him. Dan Mullen does a great job of scheming it up. And without those players, I don't think Kyle Trask would be nearly as effective I could be wrong there. Maybe he'll prove me wrong. I don't know. But with all those guys going, I just don't think Kyle Trask is the type of quarterback on his own that's going to carry that team to victory without the elite skill talent around him. So even though I'm not still, I'm still not sold on Oklahoma's offense. It's not the same caliber Oklahoma offense that we've seen all year or all through Lincoln Riley's tenure. Their defense is good. They're good enough on offense. 
I'm picking the Sooners to win that game. Change my pick. So I had to throw that out there, guys, before that game is played. But anyway, thanks for listening, guys. I really appreciate it. Had fun doing this one. So let me know if you guys like this style or like this format of, of previewing games. Let me know on social media. Hit me up on Twitter. Um, DM me at GloryJ at Glory Podcast. You can email me, GloryJPodcast at gmail.com. If you guys like it, we'll consider uh, carrying it forward through next year. If not, then we'll go back to what we've been doing. We want to try to make sure we're producing content that you guys enjoy. That's what we are here to do. But thanks for listening again, guys. Charlie and I will be back later this week for Bull Picks Part 2. And as always, go dog.